If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. We just design everything ecologically, period. Everything that we do, you know, our goal is and should be to strive to be as ecological as possible. And if, if we do everything according to nature's rules, we can't screw up. That was Mark Shepard, the CEO of Forest Agriculture Enterprises, the founder of Restoration Agriculture Development and New Forest Farm, as well as the author of the award-winning book, Restoration Agriculture, Real-World Permaculture for Farmers. Stay tuned as we're about to explore why we need to stop trying so hard to realize a world based on persistent concepts and ideals that we made up, and instead get out more to observe and learn from how natural ecosystems actually function. What is problematic about how we've developed a food system based mostly off of annual crops versus perennials? How he's been able to utilize a near hands-off approach to growing food productively and regeneratively, which he calls the stun method, or sheer total utter neglect, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. One of the things that really, really struck me was my dad had planted a tree when I was born. We lived in northern Massachusetts. It was kind of semi-suburban Massachusetts. There were some apple orchards and a dairy farm nearby, but it was mostly industrial workers that you know drove to the town next door. He had planted this tree in the yard when I was born, and the neighbors had a trash fire. It was back in the days when everybody burned trash that escaped, and it caught the grass on fire, and it came over, and it burned the tree. And he stood around that little tiny tree, maybe knee-high, and swatted at it with a shovel uh, over and over and over to save that little tree from getting burned, and it got burned. And that was the first time in my life I ever saw my dad cry. He just he just knelt down on the ground and he sobbed elephant tears. 
Mm. And so I realized that it, at that moment, it's like, whoa, there's something going on. That tree is really, really, really important to him. And I really got into caring for trees, you know, at that point in time. That was one early influence. I guess another one was just growing up in industrial north central Massachusetts during the, uh, you know, the great industrial collapse of the 1970s between uh, businesses having tax incentives to move their factories to, you know, Mexico and Korea and, and China and all that kind of stuff. There was the oil embargo that made things, you know, a lot more expensive and transportation was crazy. There were gas lines. Everybody got fuel efficient cars. My parents got solar panels on the roof. We had gas rationing. One of the big games when I was a kid, when we were driving down the road, was to guess what color the river is today. Oh. The river would be blue, it would be green, it would be orange. Oh. <laughs> uh, there'd be gunk floating on it. There'd be trash that was lit on fire. And I can remember when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire in Ohio, kind of went up to my mom. It's like, well, mom, why did that make the news? Our river catches on fire all the time. And she kind of told me, no, that's not what rivers are supposed to do. And so that was kind of some of the beginnings of my uh, ecological awakening, shall we say. Wow, that's really powerful. And I know that you had started out learning about permaculture in your early 20s, I believe. What was your aha moment that solidified your perspective on land stewardship? And how did you get into agriculture? Back to that that time period, one of the ways to obviously to save money, I'm, I'm the smallest of three brothers, I'm the oldest, but the smallest, you know, six foot tall and almost 240 pounds. So I'm not a, a little guy. And so we ate a lot. And my dad had this huge garden, probably an acre in size, you know, backyard garden. And of course, being the oldest boy, I was supposed to be the responsible one. And so I had to work more in the garden, making compost, all that kind of stuff. And it was hard work. I got hot. I got sweaty. I got dirty. I got bit by flies and insects and all that kind of baloney. Even I was grateful when I would be let go, released from this you know, horrible work duty, and I could go run off into the woods that was out behind the house. And off in the woods behind the house, I'd find everything from all different kinds of spring greens in the springtime. There were, there were berries from raspberries, wild strawberries. There were grapes and blueberries. There were hickory nuts and, and uh, walnuts and butternuts and hazelnuts and uh, we were in an area where the American chestnut used to be, so I'd always go around looking in the woods for these stump sprouts of American chestnut, hoping that one might have a flower and might have a nut that I could plant into a tree. And so I'd, I'd sit down in the woods oftentimes, in the shade, comfortably, next to a little babbling brook, thinking to myself, well, why is it that I work so hard out in the garden? You know, in order to get that garden, you know, we have to keep fighting the trees because they keep trying to grow in our garden. Why not just kind of interact with the natural ecosystem and harvest the food that's there and then manage it so that it actually produces more food for us. That led me to discover a book um, written originally written in 1926, I believe it was, by J. Russell Smith called Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture. And that's where I first you know, saw the two words together, permanent and agriculture, and realized that the majority of agriculture as we know it today is based on annual plants, which are plants that you plant either in the spring of the year or whenever you disturb the soil. And they grow for just a few short months. 
they produce a tremendous amount of hard, dry seed, and then they die. Um, annual plants are part of the economy of nature, and what they are used for in nature is they colonize disturbed sites. After a tree blows down and there's a you know a, a exposed pit of earth that fills in first with annual plants, or a abandoned parking lot will start to fill in with annual plants or a volcanic eruption puts you know silt or sediment out there that gets colonized by annual plants but to base a a agriculture on it and a whole entire civilization on annual plants we are required in order to get our food we are required to continually destroy an ecosystem every single year after the corn that's planted across the street not doing very well this year because of all the wet weather after that corn crop is harvested, nature wants to come in with perennial plants. These are plants that live a long time, you know, 5, 10, 25, 1,000 years, that sort of thing. A uh, perennial ecosystem wants to come in, and we have to kill it again, either by plowing it or spraying herbicide in order to get our grains and our legumes. Mm. And so I, you know, I related it directly personally because working in the garden was hard work. And all I got was like a couple of carrots and a tomato to throw in the soup. And I don't even like cooked carrots. <laughs> whereas, I, whereas I could go down in the woods and, and there was everything there. Well, why not, why not take the natural productivity of a complete intact perennial ecosystem and move those elements out into what we call agricultural fields? Then let's take some of the concentrated very high caloric yield agriculture of our fields and move it into semi-wooded areas. So we have a blending of both. And that kind of led me to discover the term agroforestry, which is the intentional combination of trees and shrubs and crops and pasture on the same unit of land, managing it as a single unit. And it was only after I discovered all those things that I read uh, the Permaculture Designer's Manual and that's when the aha moment hit me because it's like, oh, yeah, we just design everything ecologically, period. Everything that we do, you know, our goal is and should be to strive to be as ecological as possible. And if, if we do everything according to nature's rules, we can't screw up. Mm. We can't screw up. Worst case situation, if we went and planted – the, um, one of my big things here is let's let's do one small change because permaculture says, oh, yeah, try to do small, slow changes instead of making a big mistake by making a big, huge, fast change. The permaculture movement has taken that to mean that permaculture needs to be small. Not if you really read what Bill Mollison was originally saying. He was taking, say, make small slow changes. So the one small, slow change that I would like to make is to take all of the area in the Midwest where you can currently grow corn and soybeans, and I would like to make one little change and turn it back into an oak savanna, which is what was there in most of the places in the first place. Mm. And the worst case scenario for us human beings is we'll have no net loss of crops in the field because we'll be growing crops up in the third dimension instead of on the flat soil surface. And if we screw up, it's 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 like it's nature. It's just like nature. We'll use you know trees, shrubs, bushes, vines, shade growing plants, you know shade tolerant plants, um, fungi that are decomposing the various different layers, and we can eat all of those things if we design it that way. 
Well, today we have a very dominant view of what food production on our farms should look like, and this is very evident from just even searching images online for the words farm or agriculture. Mostly, we see perfectly straight rows of the exact same crop on acres of land straight. What do you think led us to have such a prevalent and persistent, almost singular idea of what farms sh- should look like, and how did all of this come to be based on annuals, like you mentioned? That's uh, that's way too big of a topic to cover in, in a mere in a mere twelve hour podcast. But some some of what is I'd like to point out is it's a natural human characteristic is that because it's easier to do, we tend to view the world through our concepts, hmm. not through actual observation of what's actually taking place. And that may sound a little esoteric, but it's not. And I want to use the word, for example, invasive species. Many people have this idea of what invasive species are. They're not from around here. They may not have any kind of uh, predators or control mechanism in the environment. They go rampant. They get rid of natives, all that kind of things that invasive species do. Well, human beings tend to view that through their concept invasive species and i would like you to name me one one organism on the face of the planet that has an intellectual concept called invasion and that's human beings Mm. it's it's an idea it's not a fact it's not a truth or a reality of what these plants and animals are doing that's an idea that we have put on like sunglasses and now we view reality through the idea of invasion So what are people doing now to invasive species? We're fighting the invasion over and over and over and over. And we're not winning because we're not in reality. We are in our realm of ideas. We are are exclusively acting within the realm of ideas. And it has consequences on the real world because if we go out with herbicide and fire and front-end loaders and all that kind of stuff to get rid of these invasive species, (laughs) we are making a real impact on the real world. But we're acting in our ideas. Same thing. If I if I say the word agriculture, most people get a picture of what agriculture is. And that was your original question. Now, how we got to where that picture came from and what it is, uh, we don't have the time to get into. But it's it's the image, it's the idea, it's it's this idol almost, if you will, of concept instead of an observation. How does reality really work? How do plants really grow? Have you ever seen a tree growing out of a cliff? Mm-hmm. All right. So people you know, want to go plant an apple tree. Oh, you have to dig a $40 hole for a $10 tree. You got to do the soil preparation for three years in advance and cover crops and a little bit of you know, some sort of fertilizer, whether it's manure or compost or chemical fertilizer. Then you have to mulch it and put on a stake and this and that and the other thing. What about that tree on the cliff? Who took care of the soil? Well, there is no soil. It's a cliff. Breaks well, all the rules. <laughs> the tree the tree can't grow. Oh, actually, I just was reading some research. I was uh, preparing for a presentation that trees are actually able to synthesize about 80% of the nutrients that they need in order to live on a rock. It's like, well, wait a minute. If they were only able to synthesize 80%, they would die. They are able somehow to have 100% of what it is that they need in order to live growing out of a rock. So they, are, they aren't breaking the rules, but we don't understand the rules that they're playing by. And we have mm. these concepts of how 
agriculture has to work or you have to plant the tree this way and they're and they're false concepts they're not observations they're not they're not they're not real so we really have to live less in our own imaginations of what the world should look like and go out there to actually observe what it already looks like and how nature already functions what it actually is and how it actually functions, right? And I uh, oftentimes will use the illustration of the ditch on the side of the road. And I don't know where most of your listeners live, but most ditches on the side of the road, unless you're in a seriously hard baked desert, most ditches have some kind of vegetation growing out there. And who planted it? Who plowed the ground, did the site preparation, you know, the herbicide fertilizer, pest control, disease control, weed control, all of that on the ditch on the side of the road. And yet every spring in every part of the world where I've ever gone, every spring, all the, all the time throughout the year, wherever I go around the world, there are people walking along the side of the road harvesting edibles. They're out, you know, wild crafting, harvesting some kind of edibles. Well, how did that food get there? How does it survive? How does it persist? with no care from human beings, and just as important, it didn't cost us anything to get that food. It was absolutely a free gift of nature. So why can't we design farms to operate like nature does? Well, we can, and that's, that's basically my life's work is teaching people how to do that and to get them to stop getting stuck on believing something that you've been told because it's what everybody's been repeating themselves forever and ever and ever and start actually observing the actual plants and animals and soils and water and wind on the actual planet where we live. Mm. Really observe nature and oh my gosh, it's just like it grows like crazy everywhere. <laughs> on a similar note, in an interview that you did with Justin Rhodes on YouTube, you talked about how orchards are completely a human construct. Um, <laughs> and, you know, similar to most of our crop farming and rows, which is also a human construct that doesn't exist in wild nature. What do we lose out on when we artificially create these concepts in our minds of these monolithic landscapes rather than learning from nature through biomimicry? Well, I think what, a lot of what we lose out on are, are the, you know, zillions of years worth of interrelationships between all these different organisms from, you know, fungi and lichens to insects and vertebrates and all that kind of stuff with the plants that are in place, all of the different plants that grow with the plant in question that you're talking about. And some of what happens with those interconnections are what has to be substituted for uh, either with labor or with chemistry. And a classic right out of the permaculture designer's manual that many permaculturists have done, even I did it myself, apple trees would prefer to not have a lot of dense fibrous sod at their roots because their feeder roots are, are very shallow on the surface and they like a nice crumbly, soft crumbly soil. So if you plant a plant such as comfrey around your fruit tree, uh, apple tree specifically, it'll make a nice soft crumbly soil. It will outcompete the grass. It'll get rid of the grass. And it also happens to accumulate calcium and it's either phosphorus or potassium. I forget which one. So it's actually bringing up fertilizer for the uh, apple tree. It's making the soil on the surface real soft and crumbly. And the big large leaves are, are providing overwintering sites and, and hidey spots for beneficial insects such as predatory wasps that will eat the caterpillars that eat your apples. And of course, the flowers on the country are providing extra nectar source at a different time of year when your flowers are blooming. So all the wild pollinators, not just honeybees, but all the wild pollinators have something to eat 
at a different time of year. And that's just a simple, simple, simple situation of a comfrey and an apple. Just imagine the diversity of nature, all the different crazy things that are going on out there that we don't even know about because we're stuck in our concepts. Mm -hmm. We get rid of everything except that apple tree. And then when an insect, which is natural and native and normal in this world, flies into our orchard, all of a sudden we have a problem <laughs> and, we, and we have to attack and solve this problem. Well, it's not a problem. It's reality. Let's figure out what is that insect doing? What's its life cycle? What are its alternative host plants? What are the predators like to eat it? And start building a system uh, that's a lot more natural. A lot of what I do is I observe... <laughs> I observe nature. Mm -hmm. So no matter where I go, I look for different groupings of plants and you kind of look at it and you figure out how are they functionally related in the spot that they're at, you know, south facing, north facing, tall ones, short ones, really low growing plant, you know, viney ones, which species they are. And I don't necessarily need to know what kind of synergies they have going on between them. I don't care if this grouping of plants shows up over and over and over and over and over across the planet. I group those plants together and they seem to do all right. Mm. So, yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a lot of vital synergies lost when we break these beneficial or mutually beneficial relationships that plants and animals and microbes have already evolved over like thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And we just cut that all off. Whose who's brilliant idea was that? I, that ba really baffles me. <laughs> <laughs> I heard how we've been spending a lot more money doing R&D or doing research on what's out there in outer space compared to what's actually beneath our feet in terms of on our lands and our soils and, and so forth. Right. And I'm, least, uh, I'm glad that a certain degree of uh, attention is being brought to you know, ocean permaculture where we're growing the cleanup species in the ocean from, you know, shellfish to shrimp and, and kelp in floating cages and what that, because what that is, is that's a water purification plant floating around in the ocean. Three quarters of this earth's surface is ocean. We can have ocean cleanup facilities. You know, let's not cover the whole three quarters of the planet, but let's say a big portion of the ocean, way bigger than the land surface area is producing food while cleaning the ocean at the same time, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And why aren't we studying that like we are studying? I just uh, read that the Japanese sent a satellite that tunneled into an asteroid, and when it got to the middle of the asteroid, it sent a sample in a little rocket booster back to Earth. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> How many billions were spent on that? And we get a little piece of you know <laughs> quartz crystal. Yippee. Very baffling to think about why we do the things we do. But for you, so you have a very near hands-off approach to restoration agriculture, which you call the STUN method, which stands for sheer, total, utter neglect. I'd love right. for you to tell us more about that and what allows you to be able to not micromanage the land like most of agriculture does, but still end up with a regenerative food production system. Well, it goes back to that observing nature and natural plant communities. If you see groupings of plants, you know, here and there that you always see them around the world. And the one I work with the most in the temperate zone is the uh, the oak savanna plant community type. And if you can imagine taller to smaller, the upper story were the phagaceae, which were oak, chestnut, or beech. Understory of a malus and prunus, which are apples and cherries. Uh, then a shrub layer. Also prunuses like plums and apricots, uh, that sort of thing. 
and hazelnut, then a cane fruit layer of blackberries and raspberries, vines such as grape and passion fruit, grass grows all around, all over the place, shade-tolerant plants such as currant and gooseberry, and then animals obviously are, are living out in the grasslands. Now, the, the savanna biome is the biome that supports the most mammal biomass uh, of any other biome on the planet. And so if we are mammals, we might as well start to create agricultural systems that mimic the savanna biome. And if you just pick those species that I, I chose and tall to short, instead of going with oaks or beech, I went with chestnut. Of course, instead of wild crab apples, why don't we substitute various different domestic crab apples? Same with cherries and hazelnuts and plums, gooseberries, raspberries. Well, then, then what, what I do, since I know that naturally these plants have coexisted for, I don't know, 900 million years or 6,000 years, depending on what your references are, they live together. They've, they've figured this planet out. They've been through several ice ages and global warmings in between. They've got all of the answers if we just kind of like turn them loose and nudge them a little bit. And one of the ways that we nudge them a little bit is by harvesting them to keep them in the prime stage and to keep the whole system in the phase, the ecosystem phase that is the most productive for us, which conveniently on planet Earth requires what's called disturbance. I already referred to disturbance before. Every ecosystem on the planet experiences some sort of disturbance. And it can be a, a wildfire, windstorm, a huge herd of bison or wildebeest go trampling through, grazing by animals, flood, uh, that sort of thing. These are all different ecological disturbances. Uh, so the savanna biome was adapted and is adapted to severe abusive grazing with huge herds of animals that come through and may not come back for another 10 or 25 years because they messed it all up. <laughs> and then fire, which would come through and, and burn everything off at the top. And most of those savanna species that I just mentioned will re-sprout from the roots. Mm -hmm. So if we're imitating a natural plant community type, then we interact with that plant community type in a similar way that nature would. Uh, what kind of resembles a fire going through a system and removing all of that uh, organic matter biomass is very similar to a wood harvest. I, I harvest wood for making boards or you know mushroom logs or firewood, etc. And then the trees sprout back from that. And what kind of represents periodic and episodic intense grazing is periodic episodic intense grazing or uh, mowing if, if, that's, um, if I'm not having animals. I don't have cattle this summer, and so I'm spot mowing places that are the whole system is moving in a direction that I don't necessarily want it to. So I go disturb that. Instead of hitting it with, uh, with cattle, I'll go hit it with the mower. Mm. So basically, you've observed, you know, what it, how did these ecosystems evolve and what usually happens in a cycle of a certain number of years, and you mimic those behaviors in terms of right. what happens to this landscape. As close as I can. And then, and then the, the slippery slope that we really have to be aware of, and, and I really take it upon myself to be extreme in this matter, not necessarily uh, because I'm an extremist, but because somebody has to do it. On the sheer total, 
utter neglect part of it (laughs) (laughs) is how do we know how do we know how apples do in an an intense polyculture system with 25 other species in there how do they actually perform well unless somebody's doing that experiment we don't know Mm. and so one of the things that i get to find out is one of the beautiful facts of reality is not everything does survive so if you plant you know all these different trees, shrubs, bushes, and vines out there, the ones that are not adapted and can't handle the site, they die, they go away, they get a disease, they get pests, something happens and they just don't thrive. Mm. So what happens over time is, as I'm continually saving seed and growing new trees from the seed that I've raised here with sheer total utter neglect, no sprays, nothing like that, the genetics of the plants become more and more adapted to the site over time. Uh, and can handle all the disturbances from ice to heat to drought to floods. Well, the slippery slope to avoid is going to all these workshops, listening to all these really cool podcasts that say, "Yeah, all you do is you you know you put a bunch of rice in a in a soda bottle and you bury it in the ground, add water, and you stir it to this, and take bones and burn them in a fire, and take seaweed and this and that, and you know then you'll get twice the yield." It's like that is the <laughs> same slippery slope that people have gone down that got us to GMO chemically sprayed food. It's the same process just using other things is we don't need to add bells and whistles and doodads in order for stuff to to survive. Mm -hmm. And what we have never found out, agriculture has never found out how much of this stuff that you add, how much of that stuff is enough? How much of that is the right amount? It's always been put on too much. Oops, you make a problem, put on too much of that. You're always spending all of this money and all this time, all the extra equipment that you need to do whatever it is that you're doing for unknown returns. Whereas if you just step back and ignore it and try to (laughs) say certain things, they're about to die. I'm looking at two trees right now. One of these guys is on the way out. So what do I do? Should I go spray it with this and hit it with that? And maybe it'll recover and all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, I'm going to go cut it down because it's dead. It's just dying. Mm. You know, here's another thing too is, is, you know, the word mutation. It's just a, it's just a genetic change that happens by quote unquote accident or random. There's other processes that, that, that drive it too. Maybe most of the mutations result in the death of the organism. Some of them are really helpful and useful. And how do we, how do we find useful mutations in apples if everybody's just going to go out and grow grafted clones of Macintosh or grafted clones of Honeycrisp, and and they're not reproducing, they are not breeding to create new genetic variants to survive changing conditions. So, I mean, you mentioned how you wanted to. Your goal is to help turn the Midwest into what they used to be. As was it. Oak oak savannas, yeah. Oak savanna was a predominant, you know, biome in in the uh, Midwest U.S. So, do you feel like I mean, across the globe, we've changed the landscape so much because of agriculture? Do you feel like we would benefit from kind of looking back at what used to be here and attempting to mimic that with whatever farm ecosystems that people want to have there? Well, it's not really looking back. It's looking what also still is. That's why I mentioned the cliffs and the ditches on the side of the road. Mm. Everywhere you go around the world, there are pockets of living things. It's like, how did they get there and why are they there? And those are really important to to understand how those work. And so uh, we don't necessarily need to go back. I'll put back in quotes 
to a form that was more random and more quote-unquote natural, uh, we can actually go forward by incorporating other organisms into our current agriculture, uh, other species of plants that do not interfere with our annual agriculture. And when agroforestry systems are designed appropriately and actually managed according to their design, instead of managed according to our concepts, right. they actually uh, don't show decreases in yields of the crop in question. Like if you're growing corn, for example, and then you want to plant walnuts with your corn, you will actually get more total yield from that system and not less. Mm. In the agroforestry world, they, there's a term called the land equivalent ratio. And agroforestry systems, when designed well, have a higher than one land equivalent ratio, which means they are producing more than one acre's worth of crop. So what do you see as our greatest challenges to being able to incorporate restorative and regenerative practices into conventional agriculture or having more conventional mar farmers make this shift? Because once we learn about this, it feels like a no-brainer, you know, less labor, less artificial inputs, less financial inputs, less chemical inputs, and just letting nature be more wild to do its thing while still being able to end up with more fruitful seasons of harvest. What's stopping right. us from moving towards this as the norm? There's, there's this term called a red herring. A red herring is something that's thrown into conversation that really has nothing to do with what we're really talking about. It's a distraction and it catches people's attention and they go off willy-nilly and they argue about it forever instead of actually solving the problem. So this whole idea that we somehow have to convince our farmers of today to change their ways, that's the red herring right there. What we need to do is the people who think there needs to be a change, we're the ones who have to get off of our A-double butts <laughs> and do something about it. And, and I'm talking to every single one of your listeners right now, and I'm talking to you as well. If we aren't making absolutely every change that we can make, we're the problem. It's not annual agriculture. The reason why annual agriculture exists is because we haven't come up with a, a solution that addresses everything that annual agriculture does. The reason why we get to fight against 26,000 hog confinement operations is because we haven't proposed and shown an alternative that works. We have to show the way. And if we're not doing it, then who's the losers? Them or us? To close, I'd love for you to share your vision of what a truly restorative agriculture system could look like and what you think we as individuals can do starting now to help us get there. One of the things that we as individuals <laughs> can do starting now, one of the easiest things to start changing is our food choices. Now, not all food is equal, obviously, and not all of the conversation concerning food is is helpful in creating a greener, healthier, more socially and economically equitable planet. And uh, what I, I, I kind of wanted to get to previous question is the people who are, believe this or not, the people who are the most suited for making radical, personal, transformative change are the ones who already have. And one of the largest demographics of people who have done that are folks who have changed from a meat-eating diet to a plant-based diet, whether they're vegan, all 100% vegan or, or just vegetarian, they've made a radical change. Well, now that's not the answer and the only answer. 
especially if what you're eating comes from annual plants. So the, the people who have figured out how to make transformative change, I'll put vegans as the top of the list because they're the best at it. Well, now what they have to figure out how to do is start eating ecologically, start eating perennials. Well, then what they'll realize when they start studying ecosystems and perennial ecosystems, they'll realize that, ha, huh, doggone it, animals are part of ecosystems everywhere on planet Earth, so we need to incorporate animals back into that system. Well, we don't have to eat them if we don't want to. Those people who do eat animals, let's go another tier on the what we can do as, as, as individuals. If you're a meat eater, start eating grass-fed meats. Start eating you know, cows that were grazed on range or on pasture, start eating pork that has been raised in silvopasture systems, not finished, etc. cetera. Uh, so start with going plant-heavy, plant-based diet. Well, then when you eat meats, use meats that were fed what they actually are designed to eat by nature. Cows and pigs all graze quite readily. Then start finding specific producers and collaboratives of producers that grow food the way that you like it and start to support them. So by dialing in our food dollars, what we eat, where we source our food and stuff like that, we can make huge change, huge change. I'll use an example of the food uh, thing. I'm a part of the Organic Valley Cooperative. I've been a member for 25 years. When I started, there was only a handful of, of growers that had started with like 65 members and then collapsed because it wasn't really working all that well for everybody. Well, on the upswing again as it started to gain more members i was uh, once upon a time grower number 24 so this this collaborative of people growing you know dairy products eggs and produce got larger and larger and larger till now there are over 2500 members in the us and canada and we manage over half a million acres of land that have been converted from chemical agriculture to organic agriculture now, as Mr. Permaculture Restoration Agriculture, organic's not enough. Just like uh, I think a vegan should up the ante and go ecological. So a meat eater should drop grain-fed meats and go to grass-fed meats. I think organic farmers now need to go ecological as well. If we took half a million acres uh, that Organic Valley farmers own and manage and then planted chestnuts or pine nuts on those half million acres, we'd be the largest chestnut producer on the face of the planet with uh, amounts of carbon turning into wood that mount in the billions and billions and billions of pounds. Mm. So, so that's how we make a, a leveraged impact on the, on the planet. What we eat, who's producing the food that we eat, and then imitate nature, designed after nature. Hey, I just wanted to thank you sincerely for your huge heart and continued dedication to being the change that you want to see in the world. I know it's not always easy, but the world is a better place today because of you, and I'm truly honored that you're here. If Green Dreamer has become a part of your routine and you're able to support the show starting at just $1 per month, which will also gain you access to extended content, that would be so immensely helpful, and I would so greatly appreciate that. You can head to greendreamer.com 
patreon.com slash support to learn more. Green Dreamer is also now on YouTube, and I hope to start doing some real-life field interviews soon, so I'm not just sitting here in my closet <laughs> staring at a screen and I can actually get out there and connect with people in real life. So if you're interested in staying posted on this, you can head to greendreamer.com slash YouTube to subscribe for free. For now, to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow, or maybe even a book that's been really profound for you? Okay, it'd have to be books, but <laughs> what was really interesting because I, I actually walked away from civilization in 1984. I really did. What I, I sold everything I had, what didn't fit in my backpack, I didn't take with me. And I've decided to build my life this way. And so I actually don't really follow much social media or blogs or anything like that because I spend my time watching the birds. Mm -hmm. I spend my time watching, you know, how does the rabbit eat? What does it eat? Where does it hide? Where does it go? How aware is it of this or that? How does this tree relate to that tree? So I study nature firsthand instead of reading what other people are saying about it. That sounds a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? There is no light. It's all tunnel but we have no choice. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Let's radically transform the whole entire planet by radically transforming one life. And the only life that I have any chance of getting any kind of authority over is my own. And even that's a question sometimes. Mm. So to keep myself inspired, just keep looking at how this amazing natural world thrives and survives the most amazing abuse and it's still beautiful you can see the flower on a on a, a small tiny little miniaturized flower because it's been run over by cars over and over and over again i once watched these raspberry bushes in the, in the front landscape planting of a lawyer's office they sent runners up and suckers started to grow up all the way across the crack in the parking lot then they went down below the curb and about halfway across the street, these little bonsai raspberry plants were coming up in cracks in the pavement. That's inspiration. Mm. That's inspiration. I was just in Malibu yesterday where the wildfires had burned everything down and oh the goodness. trees were all blackened, but they had they all had leaves like they're all growing. They're still alive. So that was truly powerful to to see. So I definitely feel that. And think about what what. How different would our culture be if the agriculture of California was based on the plants that survived what California naturally does, earthquakes, mudslides, and, you know, and heat and fire? Right. If we designed an agriculture that way, and then what if, what if we insisted that in a fire ecosystem, you build a fireproof house? It's pretty simple. You know, everything from mud to concrete to tile roofs, and the house doesn't burn. Hmm. Again, more observing what already happens. Right. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? The um, top 10 solutions for climate change is listed in several different places. Project Drawdown is where I got this particular list from. When everything from rooftop solar to silvopasture, solar farms, family planning, educating girls, tropical forests, plant-rich diet, reduced food waste, wind turbines, and refrigeration management. How about all of that? That's what I'm doing. I'm just going to do some of the top 10 solutions to climate change out of Project Drawdown in every single aspect of my life because it's it's about a radical transformation of absolutely everything. I mean, my next question is what's one thing you're working on right now to live more 
sustainably or regeneratively or elevate your impact in this area, but they're kind of similar. But if you wanted to expand on this one. Uh, just a, a simple, uh, a really simple one is, I, you know, I started a long time ago, but it, it still is, is applicable today. I went totally without electricity at first to see what it was all about. Then what did I actually need in the realm of electricity? Come to find out human beings don't need electricity. We've lived without electricity for zillions of years, however long the human race has been around. We don't need it. Well, okay, there are certain things that I like and I choose to have. And so it was at that point when I decided that electricity and the use of electricity is a choice, not a need. I decided that anywhere and everywhere that I went, uh, if, if it was my residential structure, I would produce my own electricity. And that residential structure will heat itself by the natural forces of the planet from wind to solar, period. It just will. Mm. And I'm sitting in a building right now, don't have air conditioning, but I've got this fan blowing on me. And there I am, I'm consuming electricity. The computer's consuming electricity. You got freezers running over here. Well, this is big 10 kilowatt wind turbine up on the top of a pole right over there that's spinning merrily along that makes me between 40 and 80 bucks a month in positive cash flow because I'm producing so much electricity, it goes back to the grid. Why don't we make the changes uh, that we want to see? What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I think I'll go back to a little bit of that, that little raspberry sending runners underneath the road and popping up between the cracks in the road, it doesn't really matter long term, and this is a little bit sick, it doesn't really matter what human beings do to this planet. People say, we got to save the earth, save the earth. No, no, we don't. No, we don't. It's going to be just fine. Thank you very much. It just may have a fairly long recovery period before it ever gets to this abundance. Take, take the... Uh, if there indeed was an asteroid that hit and wiped out the dinosaurs, this 8,000-degree wall of heat went around the planet and you know, incinerated almost everything. It, it was a disaster. You know, it destroyed so much of life on Earth. Two-thirds, I guess, of all species went away. But look what came back just a few years later. The rich abundance that we see all around us came back. So if we human beings pollute our nests so bad and make everything plastic-covered and radioactive cinder – the earth is just fine, thank you very much. We're the ones at risk. So <laughs> right. if we, if we want to have a decent life, we have to design our future. And, and that means you and every single one of the listeners. We have to do it in our own life because if we aren't making the small incremental steps, the world is made up of a bunch of we's. And, and, if, and if I'm not doing it, that means there's one less person doing it. We've got we've to do everything we possibly can simultaneously, all at once, and sometimes without money. ForestAg.com is your website. Is there anywhere else where we can go to check out your work and continue to learn from you? Yeah, ForestAg.com is the uh, nursery website. We sell edible uh, woody crops, trees and shrubs, that sort of thing. And, and we do the breeding, um, the stun method of breeding. And then RestorationAg.com is the website for where we do consulting with others and help design their properties to create you know, more hydrated landscapes and um, three-dimensional polyculture agroforestry systems. You can also try following me on Facebook, the public, you know, Mark Shepard public image, whatever it is. Um, and I'm sorry, everybody who might want to hear from me all the time. I really don't spend a lot of time on the computers. <laughs> I really feel 
in my own personal life, there is a priority that in my life that this human being interacts with this planet for real. And that's where I, that's where I'm focusing. My energy is, is talking to the birds and smelling the flowers and walking barefoot in a stream and picking up pebbles, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And we should definitely all learn from you and do the same as well. But if our listener wants to learn more from you, you have <laughs> work online, they can That's listen right. to this episode on repeat as well. And you have a lot of other interviews through other podcasts and on YouTube. So I highly encourage our listeners to continue checking those out as well. But for now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I love the term Green Dreamer. That's great. Not only is it time to uh, dream green, it's also time to make the green. So let's stand up and everywhere we go, we leave green in our wake in the, in the form of living three-dimensional ecosystems. And we end up with green in our pockets because we do this. We do ecological restoration and agriculture as our business. And the, that phrase, restoration, agriculture, reminds me of my book. You can get it at Acres USA. It's called Restoration Agriculture. I have another book will be coming out by December on uh, water management techniques, you know, swales and berms and ponds and that sort of thing. So Acres USA is another way to, to follow me. So let's not only green, dream green, let's live green starting now, leaving green in our wake and create the future that we want to live in. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube now at greendreamer.com slash YouTube. Become a patron and access extended content by going to greendreamer.com slash support and subscribe to our weekly solutions driven newsletter at greendreamer.com. As we're wrapping up here, just remember now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.